This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the heart of Times Square. It's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And before we go any further, I would like to thank Chancellor Joseph S. Murphy and President Howard Poshansky for making this possible. It's a one, there's a wonderful television staff that works with us year after year and also helping us to provide these seminars for all of the people, not only that are here, but through Channel B. Before we go on, let me tell you a little bit about The Wing. This is just one of its all-year-round programs. The Wing provides live professional theater to hospitals and to institutions as well. We also support an organization called the Saturday Theater for Children, which is just that. On Saturday mornings, young people line up and make a commitment to buy a ticket in their own neighborhoods, in their own school auditoriums. The ages range from seven to 12. I think that this is possibly one of the most unique programs and the most practical programs to both educate and provide future audiences for the theater. We start with the fact that in order to see a live show, you have to make a commitment, and it's very important. And it is also something that you grow up with, that you go to the theater as a need, not just for an anniversary or a birthday. So we're very proud of the Saturday Theater for Children program, and we hope to do as many of them as possible. The other program that the Wing has are these seminars, and it comes out of the Wing School, which was started as a service for returning veterans to retool their trade. And when the Wing had this school, there were people like Harold Prince and Richard Rogers and Hume Cronin and all the great names in the theater that contributed their professionalism and their knowledge so that students could go from one end of the theater to another in an open door sense to learn what directing and bookkeeping and front of the theater meant and producing meant as well as acting. And now that there is so much of crossing over from one area of the theater to the other, we feel that these seminars provide the next best, if perhaps not better process for learning how to work in the theater. I am very proud and, and a little bit humble as well that the wing can call upon the kind of people that we do and get the kind of response that we do. I think it is 
possibly because the wing has a reputation as being one of the oldest of the service organizations in the theater, at providing service to the community through the theater. And for all of the loyal and wonderful talent that comes to us when we ask them, I am indeed grateful. And I won't take up any more of your time, but thank you all for being here. I am president of the American Theater Wing. I am Isabel Stevenson, and I'm going to turn the, this seminar on the performance over to board members Henry Hughes, who is a, a director, a critic, and a writer as well, and uh, Jean Dalrymple, who wears all the hats that one could possibly wear in the theater. She is an author, she is a writer, she is a producer, she was a press agent, and she indeed has crossed over from one area of the theater to the other. Thank you for being here, and they will introduce their panelists. Very quickly, I'll identify, I'll identify the people who are here today. On my far right is Karen Akers, whose quiet and subtle performance in Nine is in wonderful contrast with much of what's going on around her, <laughs> which won her a Tony nomination. Uh, next to Miss Akers is one of the great actresses of our time, Lee Bellman, who uh, has played a number of Ibsen her heroines in uh, Norwegian, but is now playing uh, Mrs. Alving in Ghosts. And uh, as an actress, she not only has uh, won a great many awards, mainly in films, but she has also has a great social conscience, and she has uh, done a great deal uh, for uh, helping the uh, children of the third world nations with through UNICEF. Next to uh, Miss Ullman is uh, a playwright and actor who acts in his own his uh, own place. I guess you would call him the modern equivalent of Noel Coward. I'm sorry. Ha yes, I can't because I, I have a microphone. Uh, Harvey, uh, Harvey Firestein, who is playing the lead in his own uh, trilogy of plays called Torch Song, Trilogy, which is one of the wittiest, and I guess it's the, the wittiest and funniest play on Broadway right now. And Jean, would you introduce the people on your left? Thank you, I will. This is Lonnie Price, who is Master Harold in that great play, Master Harold and the Boys. And next to him is Christine Baranski, whom I admired very much in Sally and Marsha at the Manhattan Theater Club, and also in the park in Joe Papp's Midsummer Night's Dream. And then there is Ben Harney, who was so great that he won one of the American Theatre Wing Tonys in Dreamgirls. Now I'd like to ask each of the people on the panel uh, to say a word about how they happened to get into the uh, show that they are now in, or in the case of uh, Christine in the, in the last show that she was in. And not the last show that she will be in, but <laughs> maybe. And also, uh, a little something about the 
acting task uh, in that role? And what was the challenge of that, of the role they played, and how did they uh, deal with it? And we'll start. Uh, Chris, um, Karen, would you? Uh, I was talk? afraid of that. Is that just because it begins with an A? No. <laughs> um, well, I, I got the role uh, through auditioning. Um, it, it wasn't clear to our Tommy Tune and Arthur Copet and Maury Yeston were the three people who were doing, carrying on the auditions, and. Uh, I don't think they knew right away that I was going to play Louisa Contini. Maury Yeston and Arthur did, but Tommy wasn't quite sure. He just knew that he wanted me. But uh, the hardest thing to accept was they found very, very soon after we began that, that I was Louisa Contini to them. And the hardest thing for me was to accept that and to see how much of yourself once you're cast, you're cast because you're chosen for some qualities th about you. And you have to, it was frightening to, for someone to say, well, you are Louisa Contini. I'm not really, I mean, in, <laughs> in lots of ways. She's, she's, we have our differences, but on the other hand, there are a lot of similarities. And I guess the hardest thing to do is simply to accept that, to have faith in Tommy as a director and just well, I'll give you one very brief idea of what I mean. In the song, Be On Your Own, which is toward the end of the show, Tommy had um, directed me to stand singing it in a particular way with my legs spread apart and a very angry kind of stance. And the song does come from anger a great deal, but it also comes from love. Well, I started the song in rehearsal like that, and, and I stopped midway through, and Tommy came up on stage and he said, is something wrong? And I said, yes, I feel so mean this way. I, I'm very uncomfortable. And Tommy looked at me and he said, are you afraid that we're not going to love you? And for me, that was the moment of truth, because of course, I think that is the fear of any actor or actress. And I said, yes. And he said, don't worry about that. So from that point on, I just accepted what he had to say and what my work was, and I love it passionately. It's the first thing I've ever done on Broadway stage. And there you are. That's it. Sleep. <laughs> well, um, I've been a theater actress for 25 years, and I felt that maybe time had come, or I should come before time, and go into the more than middle-aged women, and uh, when I was offered to do Mrs. Alving, that seemed to be a very good choice, because she is, in fact, mostly played by women of 60, and I thought, here I can prepare for, you know, <laughs> <laughs> years and years I'll be touring Mrs. Alving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, are, we are no clo closed with ghosts, not because of that. It is a very difficult play. It, um, deals with the main character, Mrs. Alving, actually reacting to what the other people are living and saying, reacting to what her past was. And Mrs. Alving is never more or less than what the rest of the production on the stage is. She has a son who is uh, dying. She has a, a pastor she was in love with like 20 years ago who doesn't want her anymore. And um, 
that is part of her problems. I love doing it because I have done Ibsen for, for years. I've done most of the Ibsen women. I think that he is the greatest playwright for women because he writes about them in a very real way. He, he knows their problems, and that is not problems of women 100 years ago when he wrote about them, but it's women today. It's our anguish trying to find our true identity. It is uh, fighting society and society's uh, norm of what a woman should be. It's fighting false ideals. Uh, the Ghost is very much a, a play about all the false ideas and thoughts and so that we inherit, not only from our parents, but also the whole society, from newspapers, everything we were brought up to believe and which has become a truth for us, but not the truth we choose ourselves, but one which we believe is true just because it always was said to us, told us, read to us. And this woman is uh, actually revaluing all these um, truths. And at the moment, where she maybe could have changed her life, catastrophe falls upon her. Her son turns uh, into madness and, and uh, a death. And uh, in a way, the carpet is drawn away from her. I think one good value about me doing it, and maybe being somewhat too young, or much younger than women who usually do it, is that a young or youngish, middle-aged, youngish, <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Alving is somebody who still has so much to find in life, so much to give in life, both in terms of love, of sharing, of everything. And the tragedy then is that she loses her chance just when she could have had it. And um, I love the play. I hope I will do it many more times and... Uh, 25 years from now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Harvey? Uh, I got the role auditioning now. Uh, <laughs> 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 I, got, I got the role because nobody else was giving me a job. Uh, so I went home and wrote it. Uh, <laughs> I guess um, the hardest part of playing Arnold uh, one part is that I've been playing it since 1978, so it's hard not to get stale. Um, and now that the trilogy is together and I do that four hours a night, I guess it's just staying alive every night is kind of the hardest part. Arnold's got to do uh, stand-up comedy, mime, uh, the serious scenes, the serious dramatical scenes. Um, I think I'm off stage about 11 minutes in the whole trilogy, oh. plus the intermissions, but those are used to change the makeup and age myself, so that's really not being off stage in those 11 minutes of changing costume, too. Um, so it's not the easiest role I've ever done. I go into the theater about 5.30 and I come out at midnight, so it really is sort of like working in an office. <laughs> <laughs> not ter I have a beautiful dressing room, which I never see. I do all my changes upstairs because I didn't have time to come down the stairs to relax. Uh, that is the hardest part, is the, is the physical energy of doing that. Also, if, if you look at the play, even though the audience is laughing a lot, the character of Arnold has, I think, two minutes in the whole trilogy of actual happiness. The rest <laughs> is very miserable. And, uh, 
But it's funny misery. Fa well, funny for you. <laughs> uh, when we first opened, the first few months that we played it, I would go home directly from the theater and um, toss my cookies, is that a nice way to put it? <laughs> and cry for a couple of hours every night just to, to work out the rest of the problems of the evening. And uh, that's the nice part is when you played it this long, you don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> you go out and get drunk instead. <laughs> Lonnie, I heard you talking a little bit about it, but would you tell us how you got started in this wonderful part that you're not playing? Uh, well, um, Master Hal was originally done at Yale, as I suppose you all know, and uh, with a different actor, Jelko Ivanik, who's a wonderful actor, and uh, he had a commitment and uh, couldn't go to New York with the play. And New York wasn't even in the picture at that point, but they did have a Philadelphia commitment that uh, Yale had promised to do. And so they, when there was some interest to bring it in New York after Yale, they figured that the kid who did it in Philadelphia should be the same one who will do it in New York. And uh, so uh, I re-auditioned, because I had originally auditioned for it at Yale, and uh, didn't get it. And uh, Mr. Fugard called me back. And uh, realizing that this was sort of a part of a lifetime for a young actor, I did everything I possibly could to be right for the role. I got a haircut. My hair was very long. I bought contact lenses, because I thought they didn't want a little Jew with glasses. <laughs> and I got, um, I did, I wore a jacket and a school jacket and shoes, which I haven't worn since except on stage. And I really went after it very hard because I really loved the play. It was very easy on first reading to see that this was a work of tremendous quality and craft. And, and uh, I just really wanted it very badly. And so I got it. And uh, nine days after I got it, I had to open in Philadelphia with it. So basically, what was what was the task was was getting it on its feet as quickly as possible, and making choices very fast, and uh, getting just getting it up was what I was trying to do mostly, and uh, rehearsing later, which is what I did was we uh, I spent uh, all my time with Mr. Fugard. We did meals together, and uh, um, he creates a family like no other director I've ever worked with. It really is a family. Everyone talks about it, but uh, we rehearsed in New Haven, where there would be no distractions, even though we weren't going to play there. And uh, we spent nine days together. And uh, Ethel uh, gave me anecdotes of his life. As you might know, it's autobiographical. I'm playing uh, the young Ethel Fugard. And uh, it was a fascinating nine days, and a scary one. And um, we came, and after the play opened, since, I have rehearsed. I go home and I, you know, we work on little parts each night and I feel so much stronger now that uh, the play is open. The hardest part, I think, of the play is the emotional life of the, of the character. He is going through somewhat of emotional breakdown and uh, it's not written really terribly. You know, it's, uh, he just, things trigger him off and uh, it's, it's very difficult to maintain the emotional intensity every night and, uh, and feed myself with that. So I would say that that's the hardest part of it, mm -hmm. um, but uh, happy to be doing it. Good. Uh, Christine, I've always been interested to know how one gets a job with Joe Papp. Oh, <laughs> I, was, I was interested too because I, I hadn't worked for him. I graduated uh, uh, Juilliard in 1974, and the only thing I ever did for Joe Papp was a lady in waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, that's <laughs> what I call it, uh, in Hamlet with Stacy Keach, but I had never gotten a job at the public theater. 
I don't know how it, uh, I guess I wanted to play Helena in Midsummer so badly that I, uh, I set my sights for it early on. When I heard they were doing it, even before I got called for an audition, I started reading the play over and over and over. And when I went in and auditioned, I said to myself, I'm not going to try and portray a character. What I'm going to do is get in touch with the language and just be as true as I can to what she's saying and what the images are and what the meaning is. And it was amazing how much feeling came for the character and for the situation by just absolutely concentrating with a vengeance on the words. And I think that is a good, goodly part of doing Shakespeare is absolutely having a love affair with the text. It'll, it'll just take you so many places if you uh, commit yourself with your head and your heart to the words. I found that the challenge of doing Helena was that you know, although she's funny and wonderful, she, she gets a bit redundant because she's always, if you know the part, she's always talking about how why won't anybody love me? I'm so ugly. And one has a sense that the energy is going in. She's, she can seem ponderous and depressing. So I tried to think of her as a, a, a woman who was, rather than a de depressing or neurotic or ponderous character, but someone who was intensely curious about her own life and her own fate someone who was always in a state of wonder, even when she was in pain, she was marveling at it, you know, oh God, look at this. I thought it was difficult back then. Now it's really difficult. <laughs> and uh, when I was uh, performing in the, in the part, I, I was reading a book by Rilke, the poet Rilke, his Letters on Love, which is a beautiful piece of writing. And uh, one of the remarks that he makes is, uh, it's a simple statement, it's live the questions. In your life, you must learn to live the questions, not the answers. And it was one of the best pieces of acting advice I've ever read, because in fact, when you go on stage, you don't know what your fate is. You always have to be in a state of wonder at what is going to happen and pursuing rather than assuming that you know. So uh, it was a great experience for me. I learned a lot in that uh, six weeks that we rehearsed and in the eight weeks that we played it. Ben, I suppose you auditioned for Michael Bennett? No. No. <laughs> Actually, um, like Nine, Dreamgirls was developed in Workshop. That's correct, right, Karen? Right. And um, the original uh, coming together of what was then Tom Iron's Workshop number, number Nine oh. was uh, done by Tom Iron. Michael was just the producer at the time. And we had extensive auditions, which I didn't know anything about. I was doing another show, and through that show, the casting person had seen me <coughs> and told Tom that I was right what he was looking for. So they called me in in the final callbacks, and I had my first audition was like three hours long. And then the composer called me that evening, and the next day I went in for like another three hours, and that was it, and then we started rehearsals. And so my character, Curtis Taylor Jr., I won't say he was a non-entity, but I'll say that he was not who he is now then. And <laughs> hmm, the first two workshops Tom directed, 
And so Michael didn't take over as director into the latter two workshops. And so Curtis kind of emerged. He didn't, he didn't start out where he is now. And I guess my, my most difficult task was developing an empathy with Curtis, was really learning to like him. Because I believe you have to like the character. You have to find a, a, a connection between you and the character's life that you really care about in order to give him and do him justice. Because the easiest, um, Curtis is called a villain in the show. Because it's the easiest uh, adjective, I guess, to describe him. And um, he's even been called the, the JR of Broadway. <laughs> but um, he has, he's, he's, he's nothing like me, although my wife might disagree. He's nothing like me. Uh, but to, to find a truth in the character and to find a real regard for his life pulse without making him, as a critic called, a uh, mustache-twirling kind of villain and really provide him with something that the, uh, the audience would sympathize or empathize with so that then it would provide a moral to the story at the end when he does realize his fault and it's realized by the audience as well. So it was really a developmental process. It was really grueling in a lot of ways. And I, my show isn't four hours long like Harvey's, but it is three hours long. I am on stage most of the time. The, because it is, it is a musical, it is a book musical, it's not a musical comedy. Um, but being a musical, the, the sheer physicality of it may lend itself to helping me keep pumped up, so to speak, so that the energy doesn't lag. And of course, it being a, a hit of the season, the audience response helps it helps you to, to stay pumped also. But uh, it is a lot of work, and it is he provides the machinery. The men provide the machinery. I don't know how many of you have seen the show, but the men provide the machinery. And uh, interestingly, the first title of the show was Big Dreams, not Dream Girls. And that kind of uh, says it a little bit more clearly as far as the fact that there's several dreams at work here, several uh, desires being portrayed. Uh, yeah, I guess that, 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 that pretty much says it. He, uh, he's that machinery. And, and being the, the works that provide the works is really uh, a challenge to really find ways that he can be all things at all times to all situations. What impresses me about all this is how much hard work seems to have gone into what looks so easy on the stage. And uh, I'm wondering, we have a great diversity of backgrounds here, and, and uh, I'll Perhaps, uh, Lee, you might start because uh, your training was in another country in another language, and uh, so that uh, for you to play uh, uh, Ms. Alvin here, you, it, it must be a double process, whereas for everybody else it's a, it's a single process. And maybe uh, you'd speak a little bit about uh, the kind of training that you, that you get uh, were you at the Norwegian National Theater on Carl Johansgarten? I have been there for many years, yeah. but my actual training was uh, at theater school in uh, London called the Weber Douglas School. And I went there for a year, and then I was a pupil, as they called it, at the theater, meaning that I got all the lessons in my free time, like learning to fence and acrobatics and singing and voice training and costume training. And at the same time, I was uh, performing. And since I was the only young girl at that theater at that time, it was a small provincial theater, I 
got my training really doing a lot of plays and a lot of the, the classics. So when I was allowed to call myself an actress, you have to have theater school in Norway and then you have to have three years of being a pupil at the theater. So after five or six years, you're allowed to call yourself an actress. I felt I was well prepared, maybe because I had combined the two things, both school and actual um, workshop on a professional uh, stage. What about the problem of acting in a second language? Well, in a way, I always had that, because in Norway we have two Norwegian languages, and I, for many years, were at the theater where they speak this second language, Norwegian, which is actually almost only a literary uh, language. It's called New Norwegian, and few people talk it privately, but we have this theater where we even you know, when we, trans we do Ibsen and, and Norwegian plays, we have to translate them. So I was actually used to thinking in another language. Also, I have a very strong dialect in Norwegian. So when I later started to work in the National Theatre, where they are very specific, you're not allowed to have a dialect at all. I always had to overcome what is my natural way of thinking and breathing out words. So in a way, I felt uh, starting to work in... English, acting in English, I did it first on <coughs> several times in the theater. I felt, in a way, it was um, uh, easier because I, I had to transform so far from everything known to me. Doing new Norwegian was close, but not the same. Doing Swedish pictures, I'm Norwegian, was close, but not the same. Doing English is completely different, and though uh, those, uh, uh, a challenge. And I like it because it makes me think new thoughts, which mm. is good. It's not always <coughs> leave on the stage. It's uh, leave having gone through a process of words. Actually, it was a language mistake that got you into Ghost. You want to tell them about oh, that? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, they sent me a telegram, the producers, and asked if I wanted to do Ghosts of Ibsen. And I thought, oh, that must be Ghosts. That must be when the dead awaken. And with the... Uh, Actually, <laughs> and actually, I had signed the contract and everything doing ghosts, and I was in Italy doing a film, and a friend of mine said, "Listen, what do they call uh, when we dead awaken in English?" And I said, "They call it ghosts." <laughs> he said, "You are not doing when we dead awaken." <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I went into my middle-aged uh, thing. <laughs> Christine, you spoke about. Um, the, your training at Juilliard, which I suppose equipped you to, to do with Shakespeare, you always come across as an actress who is kind of very uh, contemporary and hip and so on. And, and actually, uh, <laughs> uh, you did have a good deal of classical training. At, at yeah, uh, Juilliard is a, a lot of emphasis on voice and speech. I went to Juilliard when I was 18, and I think a, a lot of uh, people that go there are, are confused and there's so much coming at you. You don't know how to utilize the skills that they're trying to give you. But I did go and do a lot of regional theater when I, when I left Juilliard, and, and I did Chekhov and um, Moliere. I did Shakespeare, uh, Shaw. I did a lot of language plays. And after about three or four years, a lot of that training started to make sense to me. So it got, it was much easier for me to do. I think that's Shakespeare. true that the students at the time they're, they're studying at Juilliard feel that they are, uh, this is, is uh, pretty much a waste of time because the, uh, why am I not going on the stage? I don't need all 
the things they're teaching me. But then when they get out of Juilliard, they suddenly find they're glad they had them. The yeah. <laughs> Karen, you uh, came out of uh, cabaret in a way. Uh, I remember Audrey Hepburn first came over here. She told me that, that she, although her, she, her training was with uh, ballet, that it was cabaret training that she found most valuable when she switched to theater. And I, perhaps you could say something about that. Well, in a, in a sense, a lot of people think I have been acting all along as a singer because the songs, the kind of music that I chose was always um, like storytelling. I mean, dramatic songs and, and each time it's like many, many characters in the course of an evening if I sang 15 songs. It's not necessarily 15 different people, but it's 15 separate points of view. and. I never called myself an actress. I mean, I, I only very, very recently have begun. I mean, I, you know, without the schooling and without all of that behind me. I did study for a short while in New York with um, Stanley Harrison at Network. And it was, uh, I sort of took class once a week when I could, when I wasn't working in cabaret. And Stanley had s several very, very valuable things to teach me. Um, like what? It, well, it was more a question. I'd been doing a lot of things instinctively, and Stanley, and, and I described one thing I'd found, which was sort of a rhythmic counting to sort of, it was a breathing thing, and it was just for steadying, and Stanley said, well, bless you, child, this comes from the Russians, but you just, you know, you didn't know the particulars, and he showed me more about that, and he taught me how important relaxation was, how important it was to go slowly. It's odd, but the less... You know, theater to some degree has a lot of artifice in it, but what, what reads most truthfully on stage is, is an unguardedness, is, is a, a lack of pretentiousness and a truthfulness within the character. I mean, not necessarily your own, but that's what, what comes across. I'd done a workshop in, uh, in Washington at the Arena Stage, an improvisation workshop. I guess you could call that part of my training. Um, somehow, well, um, but basically I came to the stage as a singer. I'd like to ask a question. At this point, I've listened to all of the panelists, and in each case they've talked about developing the character. Each one must have a different method of developing the character. You, Harvey, you had it within yourself to say, I'm not going to be that hard on, on the actor. I can make it a little bit less um, unfunny, a little bit less sad. But on the other hand, there was a character that you saw that called for this. What do you all use? What methods do you use? In can you discuss within, your within the panel itself how each one comes to taking that character? What background do you bring into it? How you arrive at finding your, your character? It was difficult for you, Lenny. You said, I, I had to think as Athel did. Well, I was very lucky because I had Athel there. And uh, knowing you're playing the younger version of, of someone is, is, is fascinating to, uh, to watch him. And I've stolen tons from him. Uh, a lot of his body movement and stuff, which is uh, my favorite part of acting, is, is putting on an entirely different physicality, which is, I think, the most exciting part for me. And uh, once I have a certain gait and, and, um, and posture and rhythm, it helps me uh, very much to go back to the text and, and in, not impose it so much as infuse it with, with what it is. And uh, 
afro was was um, was very helpful, and also the clothing. I'm wearing. He is wearing, you know, these heavy shoes, these, you know, uh, really nerdy clothes, and it makes you feel a certain way. It, it makes you, your body feel a certain way, and I think uh, it reflects all the way down the line. But I stole from Afro like mad, and someone said to me, "I look like uh, an old friend of Afro's came back uh, the other night and said." I've known him for 25 years, and you remind me of Apple as a boy, and oh, that was the best you know, review I could have gotten. Harvey, do you want to say something about... Well, I was going to say, it's not, it's not quite as simple as to say when you write it for yourself, because you don't... I mean, the playwright would never allow the actor to say what he could write and couldn't write, and they're very jealous of each other. When one review says, I'm a better writer than an actor, the actor won't serve the writer dinner. <laughs> <laughs> it goes on from there. They really do. They do argue, and you end up with this exact same problem because um, once you get a role, that role is going to become you anyway, and you're going to become that role. When you've written a role, as some people think Arnold is, is semi-autobiographical, it's even harder because you don't want, I mean, you want everybody to believe you are the character on the stage, but then you don't want them to really believe that you're playing yourself, and you end up battling what you should not be battling. What, Every other actor is trying to make the audience believe they are that character, and I'm trying to oh. sort of do the opposite. Say, I'm not really, I'm just playing that. Do and you want to be loved? Uh, <laughs> of course. But, but, you know, building a character, like he said, is, you know, his clothing, his movement, and all. Um, it's like in Widows and Children, when it, it came time to costuming that, I said, I want to look pregnant. I am having, I have my adopted son in that play, and I want to be pregnant. His wife is threatening with pregnancy and I want to be pregnant and I wear a maternity blouse in, in widows and hold my you know and it's bit, that's the same way as if I was playing something else that would never occur to the playwright but only to the actor side to want to do something like that. We don't? It's interesting what actors add to characters. You know, you said that the, he was almost a non-entity when you started. Tell us what you did. Well, the uh, script grew out of a series with Tom Iron, the author, uh, playwright, lyricist, had a lot of ideas about the characters, and he would submit sides to us during the day. But most and much of that took shape around and developed out of improv. They present us with situationals and tell us what they wanted from us. And Tom has an interesting way of running uh, improv because he, he kind of feeds you as you're doing it. I mean, he, he establishes a, a specific kind of energy, entity, I mean, um, energy, and puts you in it. And it's really kind of thrust upon you, and then you have to thrust yourself upon it. But <coughs> then he, as, you, as it evolves, he kind of stalks you and, and feeds things to you to kind of uh, spot different things and see what, what turns it'll take. Then he has this amazing kind of mind who captures essences and goes home and writes. And Tom writes in language rhythm. His style of writing is very rhythmical in terms of language. And for example, when we first, when we, after the first workshop, which was six weeks, when we showed it to Michael, the first act was four hours long. So that gives you an idea of. <laughs> we had like uh, 18 motel scenes, I mean, because it was, it was, a, it was a totally different style of. Uh, piece in, in that day. It was constant transition. And uh, at one time, the show went to a, a, the show was at a point in the very beginning where it was a book with music that strained through. 
and it went from that to being a total opera. And then it went to what it is now, which is kind of a twixt and tween, where you have uh, definitely operatic formulas uh, infused into the, the, uh, the uh, style of the piece. But it, it stands as a book. Um, How long was the second workshop? Each workshop is six weeks long. Isn't that but wonderful? There's a, there's a break in between. There's a hiatus in between each one. And it can be anywhere from a week to several months, which is mm -hmm. what we wound up. Because the workshop lasted a year. We went from oh. July 80, and we went into production August 81. So it lasted that long. And it's really grueling. It's just to, to digress for a second, it is a formula that I greatly agree with, though, for musicals. Because unfortunately, we noticed that very often with musicals, the book becomes an outgrowth of the music. I mean, you have a composer who's come together with these beautiful ideas for song, and he collaborates with a writer who kind of seconds his ideas in favor of the, the music being the, the main star. Did they pay your star's wages while you were in no, the workshop? No, 150 a week, which after taxes is less than unemployment. So it was rough, uh, real rough. Real, real, real rough. And real, real rough. Did they pay you um, between the time you were the workshop no. closed and the time no, the show went to rehearsal? You were on unemployment during that time. Yeah. <laughs> Which was <Making is> more. <laughs> making, <laughs> making more money, right? <laughs> were you through the workshop through YouTube? But, yeah, um, for how long? Uh, we had the, seven uh, weeks of workshop. The workshop process, just to finish my point, the workshop process is one that I agree with for the musical. Mm -hmm. And it really secures that you're going to have a book that has a life. And of course, then the music starts to take shape around the book. And you work so closely. And what happens is that, and I love the theater, by the way, for this reason, um, much time is spent in a production, in a theatrical production, with just trying to get together relationships, just trying to establish um, what that onstage life is going to be like, because it's a reflection somewhat of the offstage life, just how comfortable, how much of a rapport you have with the people you're working with, and how close you become with the material, and how you can find the things that they're working for and complement them, and back and forth and back and forth. Well, workshop breaks down all the barriers, because oh, you, I mean, you are there, exposed to one another. All you have is each other, and it's sink or swim. Uh, tomorrow, the show could go off and become a big hit as did Chorus Line, Dream Girls 9, or it could sink into the bottom of the ocean and you have nothing. And usually when they go for workshop, they go for the highest caliber of talent they can get because it is a formulative situation. And uh, the success of, of Chorus Line kind of really catapulted the idea of workshop into the main arena of people who are so-called names in the business. Well, or workshop's minor names. been going on a long time with straight plays, too. Hasn't it, Harvey? It was almost that... In your well, case. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we, had, same, we had three years to develop towards song, yeah. <laughs> but that was out of mistake. Mm -hmm. yeah. fi I had finally gotten Ellen Stewart to put on the first act, International Stud, and it's very hard to get... That La Mama? That La Mama. Yeah. It's very hard to get Ellen to give you space and money. Yeah. And uh, the director <laughs> said, tell her it's a trilogy. I would have to fight for two more years. <laughs> and uh, when International Stud closed after it ran in the first run nine months, um, I had to go home and write part two. <laughs> and we got that on, and then I had to go home and write part three, and got that on. And so it, I guess that's a done. workshop. <laughs> with your seven weeks of, of nine in workshop. Oh, yeah. I agree with Ben. It's a bonding, it's a bonding experience. And it, it, for us, it was an extraordinary thing, because it was almost written on us. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the original cast, um, we, we have that. It's funny, last <laughs> night we did the show 
and it was the original cast for the first time in, in a couple of weeks. And it was a fantastic show. And there, there really is a difference when we're together. Um, Arthur had written a great deal, but rewrote as he saw where the scene would take us. I mean, writing with a musical for him was, he'd never done something mm -hmm. like this before. So it was a learning experience for all of us, and we could all contribute. That was another beautiful thing. Tommy, as a director, is very open-minded about um, accepting suggestions from his cast. And if he comes to a point where he, he'll say, look, I really don't know what to do here. Um, show me something. And, you know, that's, that's awfully nice. Yes, it is. Ingmar, Ingmar yes, Bergman is like that, too, isn't he? I was talking to some people of the Swedish uh, National Theater and Vermont, and, and they said that uh, they, they just loved to have him direct them because he was so receptive to, to what actors brought, whereas some of the other directors there uh, sort of were dictatorial. But he was, he was always uh, receptive. Of oh, sure. Well, my experience is that all good directors they use the talent they have. They don't come to a rehearsal saying, uh, I thought this and this out, now you do like this, and you think like this, and you count to three and make a pause. A good director will sit and watch and study and hear what you are giving. And from that, he will you know, encourage you to give more or give you a suggestion. What about this? Think about that. Uh, which also brings me to that we spoke about the, this method of acting that I would like to say that there are several, you know, methods of acting. Some actors do start with the exterior and, you know, they are enormously talented at creating a character that is very far removed from who they are, what they look like. There are other schools where an actor will start from interior and, you know, really all the time using their own body, their own face. but. The things that come from inside is what colors the performance. Um, I can say as an example, when I was doing Nora in the Doll's House, uh, I was using everything I knew about a woman who wants to break out at the same time being so much in need of being loved, being noticed for the good things, and all these thoughts I was having and just in the end of rehearsal time, actually even when we had started to play, did this Nora start to do things that I hadn't decided on? She started to sort of tiptoe when she walks. And that is because she doesn't really want to be noticed going from one place to another because she always wants to be, you know, admired, loved, but not the actual, you know, movements, but for what she was saying, what she was doing. This Nora, when she was... Uh, doing a Christmas tree, you know, to make her husband happy, suddenly started to hang things on herself to make herself beautiful. I hadn't planned on that. It just suddenly happened because from the inside, I felt what I wanted my Nora to do. Like if you watch an old lady on the street, you know, an old bag lady, some actors would maybe in, uh, in, um, intimidate, no. Impersonate. Imitate, you know, the way she walks, uh, what she's carrying, what she looks like. Other actors will follow her and try to find out why is she walking like that? Why is she carrying this? And try to project that. Um, Did Bergman direct you in Dolls? In a doll's house? No, yeah. unfortunately, you know. I would really have loved. Sen has a very good thing, which I think can be used also in acting, that the cloth becomes the cloth, that all 
big artistry, and it happens just in a split second, I would think, in most performances and so. It's when the character becomes the character. When I do Nora, it's Liev doing Nora. But in the golden moments, it's Nora doing Nora. Mm. And I think that's what we all try to achieve from different ways of achieving it. It happens very seldom, but when it happens, mm. we it's know great. it. It's yeah. great. Karen made the point that, uh, that Tommy Toon was actually asked the actors to, do, to uh, bring things to the role. And uh, not all directors are that secure. And, and uh, I'm wondering if it's if, uh, if, uh, for people who are not as well known as, as, as you people are, uh, it isn't a little bit dangerous to, uh, to come in with uh, a new interpretation that you thought of last night uh, and surprise the director with it the next day. Uh, does anyone, anybody want to speak about that? Well, I think a good director is an editor. And whether the person is very gifted or just an actor, you know, uh, see what they have to offer and then either bring it up or put it down or make suggestions. And also he must have the concept of what the whole thing shall be because he's like the conductor. Yeah. He must do his homework in order yes. to be able to... <coughs> create from what yes. is created in front of well, What is the protocol of, of, of showing uh, your inventiveness to, uh, to a director? Do you showing, your showing your inventiveness to a director. In other words, if you think of something that would enrich your role and that, that he didn't give you, uh, should you, should you go up to him quietly and say, Michael? Depends on the director, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Certain directors are very open to it. Others, you have to kind of be clever enough to <laughs> a, be clever enough to try and bleed it in yeah. or introduce it in a way that is not offensive to his ego or to his power. You have to make it seem like his, it's his yeah. idea. Yeah. There are, sometimes, there are actually schools where I've seen directors yeah. come out with where they read a script and they go into the first day of rehearsal and they've got a little drawing of the set mm -hmm. and they have little X's and they've got all the blocking marked out Very before specific. first day of rehearsal. Yeah. I mean, they, they actually there are places that teach people to direct that. Well, in a musical, some of that is necessary in the interest yeah. well, of the time and yeah. Yeah. Well, So it's a little different medium. In a way, I almost would prefer that for what we... I had a new kind of acting experience with the director for Ghost. And because he had nothing thought out, he was just going to see what happened. But he wanted to see what happened while we were playing. So, you know, I was doing Pastor Manders, Pastor Manders was doing me, and we were never sort of getting down to doing our characters. Or we were, you know, sometimes he said, well, today react as if you've been married happily and know your husband found out you have a lover. And use the text if you want, or take something else, improvise. And, you know, I thought it was fun. Fourteen days of great fun. We were playing. But in the third week, when we were supposed to know a line, <laughs> I, I didn't like that at all, and I was really longing for somebody who had come in and had the blocking straight and get on to work and with Ibsen's text because it's great and we need all the time to explore that. Uh, we ran it, we <coughs> ran into that with uh, uh, the, I missed the, uh, my standbys. Well, we don't play the matinees, Ed and I, and they took, it looked like they had a lot of time to get ready to go on, um, never figuring that a week and a half it would be moving into the new Broadway theater and they would never get any chance to rehearse. They took two weeks to really um, act as jerk off, I call it, you know, of, of sitting around and never using the text and turning the lights out in the room and getting to know each other and all that. <laughs> 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 
and not then the same from your part. All of a sudden came Saturday afternoon and they had to go on the back day and they'd never been on the stage. And boy, were they scared. We have to stop now and we'll come back in a little while. Uh, I want to talk, find out how Ingmar Bergman works with an actress, uh, among other things. As you know, we have to stop in order to rewind the tape. And while we're doing that, uh, any questions that you have for our panelists, would you please give to Peggy on the side? And you can stand and stretch, but please do not use, leave the room if you can help it. We're continuing with the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the City University of the City of New York, the Graduate Center. We're going to continue with our distinguished, experienced, delightful, and wonderful panelists. At one part of the, um, of the seminar, there will be a question and answer period. And so anything that you might like to ask, Think about it. You've given your questions to our volunteers, and we'll try and get as many as possible. Please be brief so that we can all have a chance to take and listen and make note of the experience of these people. I'm going to turn this over once again to Henry Hughes, our board member, and Jean Dalrymple, co-moderators of the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. Henry, Jean, do you want to pick up? Yeah. Henry, you start. When we stopped, we were talking about uh, working with directors and what actors like to, to um, uh, what brings out the best in an actor, what kind of direction. And Lee Bowman was, uh, uh, who has had the uh, wonderful experience of working with Ingmar Bergman, who is uh, certainly one of the four or five greatest directors in the world. Uh, I thought maybe she could say a little bit about w whether he brings out the best in her or, or whether uh, or, and if so, what is the what is the character? What is his particular um, contribution to uh, a show when when you are acting under his direction? Well, certainly, I would say that he's the director I've worked with who brings out the most I have to give, and that is very much because he does trust me. He trusts my talent. Part of his genius as a director is his blocking, and that's both on stage and in films. He never gives a sloppy blocking. There's always a meaning behind what he does when he asks you to sit in the chair for, you know, the first part of your monologue and then rise up and go to another chair by the window. He will not necessarily explain why, and you might be confused by it. But when you start doing it, you will see that that movement alone is freeing some emotion inside you, and you fill it, and you have the space and the opportunity to fill it with your emotion. On film, obviously, part of his genius is that he's using the camera so well. You know, he's really interested in, in the face of a person. And if you think right and feel right, the camera will immediately, you know, observe that and show it on to the audience. I would say that working with Ingmar is working with somebody who has great trust to everybody he works with. He knows the profession of theater. He knows the profession of 
putting the light right. He knows the profession of, of uh, doing his homework. I mean, he would never come to a, a rehearsal without also knowing, uh, let's say it's a Shakespeare play, he would know everything about that time which your play is uh, a part of. And he will, you know, maybe for 15 minutes make a wonderful, inspiring speech about this time and how the people were and what made them laugh and what made them cry. Not saying this is what you are going to put in the play, but when he's finished speaking, you are just dying to get on and try to show how the people were, how they cried, how they laughed, how they loved, how they hated, because he is an inspiration. And you know that he watches and he hears and he's always there. How does he communicate that trust to the actors? I mean, you say that you all feel that. Does he, does he do that by uh, uh, putting his arm around you, or does he do that by uh, some, punching a, a critic who is uh, objectionable? He once did punch a critic, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does it a lot with uh, silence, you know. His communication is really one of silence. And silence is inspiring. Like when you are on stage as an actor and the audience suddenly is completely quiet, I mean, it's so inspiring. And a director who has the sense to shut up once in a while is a wonderful director. <laughs> I mean, the director who doesn't ask you, now, why are you doing this? What is your fantasy? What is your thoughts? And, you know, talks it all into pieces. Yeah. That's the worst, you know. I had the director who said, you're coming into the room and you're so much in love and your heart goes beep, 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 beep and then you count to three and then you say, I love you. You know, that's exactly what I did. I came in like this and beep, 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 I love you. You know, I was awful. You know? And uh, a good director is one who knows his craft and knows the, the power of silence and the power of inspiration when he talks. It's funny, you know, Tommy used to say, I know that you have your secrets. I don't want to know them. If, if he liked what he was seeing, he would say, that's wonderful. I don't know what you're thinking about or what is your secret, but don't tell me, just keep it. And the same. You, you don't have that luxury. Why? <laughs> because you know the secrets. Uh... Oh, no, no. That was, yeah, that was the thing I don't, I don't know about anybody else. I hate if you get a moment right finally. I hate when the stage manager or director says to you, oh, and what you did tonight at that point, mm. and then they tell you what you did. You, yeah. you never can do it again. <laughs> Kill that. That's one <laughs> thing, you'll never that. get right again. I, I think to go down the line, what about directing? What about uh, the Manhattan Theatre Club? How did that work, Christine? Uh, in terms of di direction? Yes. Because well, it's Lynn, entirely Lynn different. Well, Lynn Meadow, who directed the play, knew what she wanted. Uh, Sally and Marsha. Sally and Marsha. Uh, she had a very strong directorial hand in that, and uh, I had never worked with anyone who was that uh, specific about every moment. So I had a bit of uh, trouble uh, in that area, but we worked it out. Uh, I I'm used to uh, working with, I, I hate to sound like sour grapes, but I, I, I have worked with uh, directors who, who leave you alone, but and I think, oh, how wonderful, they're leaving me alone. And then you realize they're leaving you alone because they don't know. And then, <laughs> then you really get scared. So I've had to find my way out of a lot of uh, plays on my own. And it's a skill that I think I've, I've learned over the years, how to direct myself in a way just in order to survive. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and I think a lot of actors have to do that. It's something one, one should cultivate is a... Is a a feeling for the themes of the play and for what what 
how to get inside that play if you, if you don't have a director that's just going to nurture you. But uh, Lynn, Lynn was very clear about what she wanted, and, uh, and uh, it was a, a good experience. It was a difficult play to direct because it was, it, it was very kind of uh, touching material in the sense that uh, there was a relationship between you and, and Bernadette Peters, the, or the character that she played, that uh, was not explicitly homosexual, but or even homosexual at all. But it was, but they, but she refused to leave it just as a, a suggestion, and she made you uh, actually dissect the exact limits of of the of the physical relationship you had the two women had. Uh huh. I'm always interested in the, in the uh, <laughs> feedback. I never thought about it as homosexual at all. I just thought there was so much love and tenderness between the women that, I mean, there were times I could just hold Bernadette in my arms and not even give it a second thought as to what it would be construed as. It was that kind of play where we were just coming towards each other so quickly. But I guess, um, you know, it walks that fine line from an audience point of view. They're seeing it for the first time, and, and Bernadette and I kind of did fall in love with each other just as as human beings so actually uh, the word homosexual i think now has become kind of a useless word wouldn't you say harvey to quote it bob patrick I, I am not a homosexual i am the homosexual <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i wanted to ask uh, uh, lonnie about the um uh and in his play, uh, people tend to interpret uh, any Athol Fugard play as a, ra a play about South African uh, racial prejudice. Mm. And it's very difficult to, uh, Athol Fugard, I think, like anyone else, doesn't, not, just like your play is not about homosexuality, it's about people. Or, maybe, or is it? I don't know. Anyway, I, I, I write about homosexuals. I don't know about but they're but they're people. <laughs> then it's, it's not a. Well, it's, no, well, I mean that gets into a whole other. You're thing. Not, I, mean, I mean, I see the world you're not as being to, gay, and then yeah. the heterosexuals come into that. But you're not. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just it's like it's like I look at I say Sweet Bird of Youth is not really a heterosexual play. It's a play. Yeah. And so I mean, I just look at it the other way around, and I'm sure Ethel does too. I was going to ask Alani about uh, Athol's uh, uh, play because uh, people have and do interpret it as, as a play about racial prejudice in South Africa, and actually, uh, to the people in the play, it is something different, and to Athol, it's something different. And perhaps you would say uh, what what you think the play is about, and if Athol agrees. Well. Uh, anything Athol does because he considers himself a regional writer. He will never write a play that is not set in South Africa or it is not about uh, the uh, society there, uh, which we all know is pretty dreadful. Um, he considers the play, as we all do working on it, about uh, the maturation of a young boy uh, coming of age and uh, rejecting his uh, father figure. Uh, the boy is going through a lot of turmoil about his, his dad, who is a cripple and a drunk. And uh, th through the years, he has been brought up by a black servant, more or less, a black man who works in, in his mother's tea room. And uh, through various uh, problems, because of his father coming home from the hospital and all kinds of um, tension that that causes, uh, the boy uh, lashes out at uh, his best friend in the world, who is this black servant. 
Now, uh, obviously, because the boy is white and the man is black, people look at it as it's a play about racial prejudice, and it, I don't really think it is. I think it's certainly there, but it uh, basically is a play about a boy dealing with his father and, um, and uh, his family and uh, being able to leave the nest, uh, rejecting something that's very safe. Now, you have a, a special problem, and I guess we're not the other people on the panel have it too, or have had it, and that is that uh, James Earl Jones is coming into your play, or has come in. Or, uh, at, no, he's not in yet. He will no. be in in a few weeks. But now, does, does this, uh, will this create a great uh, problem? Will the, chip, will the play change because of it, or, or, or will he merely uh, uh, try to uh, duplicate what, what uh, Zakes has uh, did before. Oh, I, I hope not. I hope the play will change. Uh, I, it'll, ha it'll have to change. Uh, there's no way it won't change. Um, I hope. I hope he won't. I can't imagine him doing that, you know, an imitation of Zakes Mokai. I can't imagine it. Um, we, will re we, will, we will go back in rehearsal, I uh, hope a lot, and we will uh, look into the values of the play again and, and, and come out with something fresh and new. It'll be Master Harold, but it'll be a different one. I can't assume that the relationship I had with Mr. Mokai will be the same as I will have with uh, Mr. Jones. I hope we will be very different. And just the very nature of it. If we were live theater, it must be different. It would be very boring if we just fit him in into a little slot that Zix has occupied by now. I think, Henry, this has been proven by all the takeovers in the theater and, uh, that have given a different interpretation, but the role remains the same. <coughs> But well, each star that comes into any one of the theaters, so that, like uh, this is, yeah. that's right, that so comes to mind stars. immediately. But, and Death Trap. But it becomes a different play stars. with Frank Langella. Uh, yeah. and, uh, well, look, we, we've been through, uh, the boy who played my son left, and the producers were sure we would never find someone. And, and the new boy came in with completely different values. The man who plays my lover was originally Joel Crothers and now Court Miller. And it, it changes a lot, uh, but the play remains the same. But very often, a play is not completely realized in its first production, and sometimes it's only because of a subsequent production or because of a cast change that somehow a, a, a play suddenly uh, becomes more of the play that the author wrote uh, than what uh, was originally. We first did uh, Widows and Children, the actor who's playing, and could not do one scene. I mean, I just sort of did the scene by myself. It just was not in his vocabulary. And when we did it again with Joel Crothers in the trilogy, it, that scene also was not really in his vocabulary. And the new actor, that was the one scene that was really in his vocabulary, and it changed the entire focus of that act. It was wonderful. I think we'll go to I questions in a minute. Uh, Isabel, you have one question. And, question. and meanwhile, will those people who want to ask questions go to the microphones here? But before they do that, in listening to the importance of workshop here, and we've, I've listened to this on many of the seminars, uh, it's a, a need almost economically in the theater now. But how do performers react to this? Would you rather do the workshop or isn't there something that you lack by not going out of town, by being completely away from New York and the critics and having an objective criticism from Boston or Philadelphia, wherever it might be, rather than being in New York and even though it's not to be reviewed, word gets around and then you begin to listen to everybody if if you're trying to to develop a play or develop a character while you're in workshop or while you're doing previews and you haven't gone out of town does the actor prefer that 
two going out of town and closing the door and having the the luxury of, of working without everybody on Broadway knowing exactly what's going on and everybody within the play listening to everyone else about what they think is right or wrong about it. How does the actor feel? Could we do a, a quick kind of thing preview or out of town? If one had their druthers, if there wasn't economics only involved in it. Well, in our case, we did go out of town. Mm -hmm. We went to Boston. We had out of town tryouts in Boston for an extended time. As a matter of fact, we were there for almost two months. I think it was two months. We, got, we went two weeks beyond what we were supposed to because Michael had some things he wanted to work out. Uh, I do agree with the formula of going out of town to try out a show. Um, chorus Line followed a different formula because it, it, it started its run, its actual production run, down at the Shakespeare Festival. So it was a little different. Um, but I do agree with the out-of-town tryout formula. Um, as you said, the financial situation is really rough, and it takes a lot of money to get things up. So people are trying different formulas to see if they work. Uh, I guess for certain shows, it hasn't proven disastrous. As a basic rule of thumb, I agree with it. As far as word of mouth getting around and possibly hurting the piece, they're going to talk anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? People are going to talk, and sometimes talk is good because it, in the same token that it might create hype that causes the critics to have kind of a uh, show-me attitude. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did experience some prejudice from the New York critics, which was overt in certain instances where they said, well, I don't want an out-of-town critic to tell me that this is a hit. So when it comes here, I'm going to come here, I'm going to come in to see it with an attitude that it has to be twice the hit to prove to me it's a hit because I am New York and you are Boston. <laughs> That's right, Andrew, too. What about you, Christine? I've never uh, sort of done that. I mean, I'd, I've never been in a, um, I was only in one musical and uh, it was not Broadway, so. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, uh, last year I did a, I did a, uh, a show called Mary We Rolled Along, which probably had the worst word of mouth of, of uh, uh, it was it was incredible and and very very. It was a it was a lot of word of mouth. I mean it was it was pretty terrible. And uh, had we gone out of town, I think uh, I think in retrospect, I think we always think we should have gone out of town. But understanding that without a star and a bunch of young kids and a, a big musical with what we would have gotten were terrible reviews on our first preview certainly. Uh, it, it might have closed out of town. So I, I'm and I'm glad we we. We were here, so I, I have mixed feelings about it. But certainly, it would have been nice to learn, and I think uh, the creators would have been a little less pressured doing their work away from uh, the fishbowl. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I haven't done it yet. I'm going to see it, so I'll tell you next year. Well, I've done one musical, and I think <coughs> that the danger is that the more cooks there are, the more uh, mess. Because we, we opened in Philadelphia, the musical was called I Remember Mama. It wasn't great then, but by the time we came to Broadway, 22 people had been fired, you know, including director, choreographer, uh, lyricist, uh, every, you know, the only left were the man who wrote the book and me and Richard Rogers. <laughs> and now they couldn't fire Richard Rogers. <laughs> nobody could fire him, and I was like the star, and nobody seemed to think about that, which maybe would have helped it. And the book, I think, uh, really could have done with some uh, rethinking. I, I felt that, you know, the more they were changing, the more they were listening to people coming in to doctor it. I mean, the worse it got. I was yeah. embarrassed at opening night, and I wasn't in Philadelphia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
you want to say something, Karen? I'm going to or go to question. I think Karen has told us about oh, her uh, workshop yeah, okay. experience. Uh, first question, please. <laughs> My name is Jay Barney. Could each of you give us a brief description of any audition you had that was a disaster or a success <laughs> and why it was either? Uh, yeah. Audition techniques. Yeah. Want to start with you? Well, yeah. <laughs> I've had some disasters. I've, you know, I've found is that this being your instrument, there are times when, because of life circumstance or whatever, you can get so out of touch with yourself that you'll go into an audition like a cold amateur. And I've gotten up there in front of a board or a dais of people and, like, stop cold and whatever came out was like blah, blah, blah. It was like floundering. I was trying my best in effort to make something happen that was at best entertaining. So those things <coughs> happen. And there are other times when because you've been in class or because you've just gotten acknowledged by your peers in something you've done or you're presently working and you can afford to not get the job, which is the best auditions. Whenever I'm working, I do wonderful auditions or I do better auditions, I'll put it that way. You go in and you, uh, it, it, it somehow comes together. Um, I think the things that work best for me are those auditions which tend to be the least austere. Even if they're on a stage, if you feel like the people out there are somehow on your side and they're trying to get the best out of you as opposed to having you prove or show something to them. Now, you know, just splash something on them. Can we have one more anecdote about an audition? Because there are a lot of people who have questions, and I don't want to take up the entire time. But, uh, right. Nobody else ever had a disaster? Or? Oh, boy. Well, I had a great one. I've never auditioned in my life, actually, because we don't do that in Norway. And, but uh, when I tried to get into Norwegian theater school after England, uh, we had to audition to get in. And uh, I was so sure, you know, I'll just come there and they'll just die of happiness. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'd, I, I'd prepare this thing when Juliet and Roman Juliet, you know, is drinking the, the poison. And first she has a monologue and then she drinks. And I had it all started out. The big thing was when she drinks and how I would, you know, stumble and then in the end fall. And I just said the beginning of the monologue and I was just about to get into the big thing. And a voice stone in the dark says, that will be it, Miss Ullman. And, <laughs> They never asked me back. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy we don't audition in, in Norway because I do feel there are some people who are good at those things, but that's truly not where you can find yeah. the talent. Could you talk about how you worked through that feeling about being very psyched for this audition and to have that happen? How do you deal with, how do you deal with that? Oh, it was terrible because I was so sure, you know, that I was really talented and that you can read talent. And I was sitting waiting for them to put the names, you know, that would be part of the theater school. And I was sitting with a boy and I was so sure he wouldn't be on that list. And I was sort of, you know, nice to him. And, and, <laughs> and there comes the list and I'm not on that list. And I can tell you, I, the whole night in Oslo, I went... Uh, crying and I went to my grandmother I can remember in the morning and said you know I'm never going to be an actress and she said listen this is good for you because now you really have to fight and I think she was right because I think the best way is to overcome the best way to work is overcoming a difficulty and right. in the end maybe winning. That's right. you know.
all of you now are working on Broadway or have worked. I'm kind of curious about the times you're not working when you were first starting out. That is, how did you maintain your drive and your willingness to <coughs> act and overcome all the obstacles that actors are constantly subjected to? We're talking about the periods between roles where they're out of work? Between Either jobs. starting out or the periods between roles. Well, Ben, you have an interesting story about the period between the workshop and the performance of Dreamgirls. Well, I was saying to it's just to, to be brief. Uh, we, you know, when you're not working, the typical job that a lot of actors get is as a waiter or a waitress in a restaurant. And so uh, there's a new restaurant that has opened up down the block from us, and most of us have made friends with the waiters or waitresses. And I mean, it's, it's an interesting kind of camaraderie. It's almost intimate. You come in and you hug and kiss one another, and people are saying, you know, what's going on here? But um, in them crying on our shoulders or our sharing with them our stories, because you go right back to your roots when that happens. I was sharing with one girl how a year ago last June, a year from last June, I was trying to find a job either as a security guard or something, just to make ends meet. And the following year I had a Tony Award, so <laughs> who knows? Anybody else want to comment on that? Well, I, I take class a lot, which I told you in the break, and I, I just think that's the, the most wonderful thing to do. I'm part of a Shakespeare workshop, which I should be at right now, and uh, I've, uh, I'm, I have an acting class and voice classes and, you know, all of that. You know, I just think that uh, sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring for an audition is death, and once you get the audition, even if you go and you haven't been, you know, you haven't been uh, tuning your instrument and keeping it and growing, uh, I think... Uh, you're not going to do very well. I don't know. I feel from men, yeah. my mental state working constantly on my craft is... is How do you get into the Shakespeare workshop? Uh? The, uh, this was an invited thing. A man named Robert Smith, who directs regionally Shakespeare, uh, is, is doing it. But there are lots and lots and lots of wonderful classes in this city. And uh, use them if you're going to do that, I think. Yeah. Hi, my name is Alan Gillis. Um, I'd like to know... You know, all of you know, you seem like really good actors, and you know, that's your whole life and everything. But before you, you know, became an actor and you were on the borderline, you know, is this really what I want to do? You know, what kind of things did you like to do? You know, did you have hobbies, working with people, you know, becoming enlightened? You said something about your grandma, you know, and how she enlightened you. And, you, you know, you talked about people. And, you know, I like to write, and I talked to Lonnie, and he told me he likes to write literature, but not for profit. Is there, you know, something? You know, that interests you besides acting and you're not working that you do for profit? Or well, Lee, you have a great interest in, in uh, UNICEF, which uh, takes some of your time when you're not uh, in a uh, show. Yeah. Well, I, I would say that I think basically it's very important that you keep in touch with life. Also to be, and especially if you are an actor, because you are dealing with human emotions and what it is to be a human being. I wouldn't say that that is why I'm working for UNICEF. That is, the reason for that is really that I've had such a privileged life and I feel that through that I have an opportunity to talk the causes of those who don't have that privilege, who are not strong enough to come and uh, um, plead their own cause. But I do think that every human being, whether they are an actor or not, should really stay in touch with life, in touch with other people. Uh, our work is one of communication, and I don't think you can communicate if you don't really try to find out what is this person at my side. I mean, we can reach the, the moon today, but we are miles away from the person at our side, and I think mm. we should emphasize that in our dealing with people, listening to them, caring for them. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. I agree with that 100%.
Just a quick answer. Someone once told me I could be creative giving my children baths. I mean, if, when, you're when you're not working, you can be creative about whatever you're doing if you want to. If you want to invest that energy, um, it's worth it. And did you? I tried. <laughs> <laughs> Different kind of energy. <laughs> yes. My name is Marshall Factor, and this question is directed to Liv Ullman. What specifically is your involvement with the children theater, with the UNICEF? And uh, after, yes, what, what specifically is your involvement in the area of children's theater with the UNICEF? And after Ghost, do you plan on touring uh, with the theater, let's say in Asia and the Far East? Well, I'm not involved uh, with the children's uh, theater. I've heard about it, and I think it's a wonderful project. What I'm doing, I, I, I've been visiting the third world on many occasions, and I, I get the stories from the little children, from their mothers, from their grandfathers, and I try to come back here and tell these stories so that people that I deal with will think less of them as statistics, but more as individuals. We know today that every other second a little child is dying of hunger because we can't afford to keep the child alive. And I think if you give them just one of these children, a little child in a refugee camp said, you know, sometimes I cry, but only when it rains, so the other children will not see it. And I think if this little child can move us, he will not only help his own self and his own future, he will help all the other little children. And that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to communicate his words. Any tour in Asia and the Far East? Uh, no. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'd like to address my question to Karen Akers. Um, I'm interested in the uh, transition that you made from cabaret to theater, and I'd like to know what is the... You say that a lot of the skills are the same in terms of acting. I'd like to know what is different. Uh, what adjustments did you have to make? What is different in creating a song or, or learning lines in a part and creating a part? Well, for one thing, oh God, there's, there's, it, it's a big question. Being on a stage, working in cabaret, you're in a small space and it's very intimate. In theater, it's odd because you're in a much larger space, but it is almost more intimate. You are more naked, you're more revealed than you are in cabaret somehow, I think. Um, I th it's very much a group. What we're doing is an ensemble piece, and um, I, I feel less nervous. On opening night, I felt much less nervous on Broadway than I did on my working ever on my own, um, simply because I knew that we were all working together, and we were counting on each other, and knew that we could count on each other, and we're all going to do our best, and you have such support. I mean, a, a workshop does create a, a very strong bond, and it really is a kind of family, so that you have that behind you to support you. Um, the music that I'm doing in Nine is, especially Be On Your Own, they're, they're songs that are very much the kind of songs that, that I would have chosen anyway. Um, so there was no difference. It's just that I get to live another person and, and sing as another person. And it, it, it's become real. Our gra the greatest luxury is time. 
Well, when you do a song in a cabaret, uh, you do, as you, as you said before, uh, for a different, uh, it's a different kind of person who sings a torch song and, and, and one who sings a funny song, so that uh, you, you create for your, within The switches yourself, are much faster. A lot of switches, whereas yeah. in, in uh, nine, you are basically the same person all the way through. And of course, on your opening night, it was, I think, uh, you had a special circumstance because the, uh, the production wanted to open in time to be eligible for the Tonys. There was enormous pressure and on us. And everybody looked like they were exhausted, and they were, but there was a feeling of, we're going to do it. And it, it, it was sort of, it had everybody mustering all the energy mm -hmm. they could to make it work, and, and it did. And, and, I, and I liked that, uh, that energy rather yes, rather but the truth of the matter is it's working a hundred times better now than it was working on opening night uh, it started to play I think Raul and I decided a couple of months ago it really started to play around end of June beginning of July then it was really we had become you know these people and it was really playing opening night was was the culmination of a lot of pressure but at the same time our belief in the show I think was what carried us through we knew what we had and even though it hadn't reached its its fulfilled moments we still knew that it had its heart and it had its head and, and we we could you know be very proud of it I think we've heard on on our seminars before that the best training that one could possibly have is either cabaret nightclub or vaudeville because there you are on your own and you have to capture an audience, you have to do it without scenery, without the ensemble, without any help. And you have to work at that almost as you work as an exercise. Well you put yourself on the line in front of everybody and that's it. That you felt more naked? In a sense, I mean I'm I'm I, you've created another person, but you know, I have a lot invested in this person. Mm -hmm. And um and the, the, what's really important is the, the concentration, mm -hmm. and you can't you can't leave your character at all. In that's, order, a, that's a big difference. That's a huge difference. You don't leave her, and, and it works the best, and you know that it's working the best when you don't leave her. I don't know of any other profession, to paraphrase, quote, where so few give so much to so many, as the acting profession. You call upon them, and they are there. And I'm very, very proud to have the people that are on the panel today come to the American Theatre Wing and give of their time and their energies instead of taking their lessons or taking a little time off to be with their family or the Shakespeare classes, whatever it is, they've come to the wing. It's one of the reasons, I think, that the wing, the oldest, the oldest organization that caters to the community through the arts is as successful as it is. We have many programs other than the one which we are well known for, the American Theatre Wing's Tony Award. That is a carrot, very publicized. We're very proud of it. I'd also like to take this time to say that it is not for the best, but it's for having achieved that degree of excellence in the theatre that one has in order to get a Tony Award. And it is just one of the programs of the Wing. We are coming to you from Cooney, which is in the heart of the Times Square. It's where the theater is. It's where all the excitement of the theater is. And it is part of the WINGS program, the all-year-round program. Our Saturday Theater for Children, 
our hospital program in which we send professional theater, Broadway and off-Broadway shows, and our Tony Review to veterans hospitals and hospitals. Our stage door canteen, it's a legendary program that started doing the war, and there are people that still come up and say, my mother had the most wonderful time at the stage door canteen, and may I please help you because of that. The wing is manned by volunteers, and we need volunteers. We need them in the office to do the nitty-gritty work of calling and booking productions, uh, of typing, of writing letters, of answering the telephone. We also need performers or any playwrights out here that can possibly dig up a play for the Saturday Theater for Children. It's very important. It's an important play that has to go to the first impressionable <coughs> ears of children at this early age. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the wing. Thank you very much for coming to working in the theater. I'm going to say goodbye to Henry Hughes, to Ms. Akers, Ms. Ullman, Mr. Feierstein, to Jean Dalrymple, and to Mr. Lenny Lonnie Brown, excuse me, and Karen Baransky, Christine Baransky, and Ben Harney. Thank you very much for giving us your time. Thank you.